Well, thanks for that reading, Eric. Uh, let me add my welcome to Matt. Um, if you are new or visiting, my name's Rod. I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. And as you've heard, we're getting to the end of this series in Luke's Gospel for this first term, at least the section we're looking at, which is Luke 10 to 12. Uh, so I'm going to pray in a moment, and then we'll come to this passage that's just been read. But one further announcement um, to add to those you've already received is that we've got a couple of people at the moment that are interested in being baptised, and so we're looking at running a baptism class over this next couple of weeks, running up to Easter, with the anticipation that perhaps uh, some people may get baptised on Easter Sunday. So if you have not been baptised, or perhaps baptism is something you've never even thought about, we'd love you to consider that, coming along to a couple of classes to learn more about what the New Testament says about baptism. There's no commitment in coming to the class that you'll actually get baptised. We'd love you to look at that, though. And um, so if that's something for you, then please uh, chat to one of the pastors, to Ken or to Mark or myself. That would be um, great. You could do that after the service tonight. Well, let me pray for us now before we look at this passage together. Let's ask for God's help. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can gather here this evening. We thank you for the freedom to do so. We do thank you for your word to us. Help us not to take it for granted, for in it we realise that we hear your voice, for you have revealed yourself through your word and ultimately in the person of your Son. And we ask tonight that you again might work in us by your Spirit, to do what is pleasing for you, that we might not only have minds to understand, but we'd have wills that desire to put your word into action. Help us to respond and live in the light of it, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Mexican jails are not known for their tidiness or orderliness. In fact, they're pretty notorious and have been for many decades offering some of the most appalling conditions, being the most derelict in the whole world. Well, knowing this, uh, President who came to power in 1970, Louis Echevra, decided that he was going to clean things up. And his way of doing it was that he was going to go and visit the jails. But he wasn't going to give them any advance notice, no warning. He was just going to turn up and see them as they were in all their glory or lack thereof. And even more so, he didn't want to go during the day where people might present a better picture than it possibly was. And so he deliberately went at midnight to a series of the country's jails. And what he found as he went at midnight was that a lot of the guards were missing entirely from their posts, that prisoners were just left unattended, sometimes prisoners not even receiving food, a whole heap of discrepancies happening in the system. And so he fired a lot of people as he sought to clean up the system. You see, none of them prison officers were prepared for this. They didn't expect him to come. They weren't there as he knocked on the door, let alone roll out the red carpet for him. They weren't even at their posts, and so they were not alert. They were not ready when he came and checked on things and found them wanting. And as we come to the section in Luke 12 that we're considering tonight, we see a similar scenario. You see, Jesus tells a parable about servants failing to be ready for their master uh, when he returned from a wedding banquet. And in this section we're looking at, it's in the context of Jesus' second coming, his return, and the fact that judgment will follow his return. And so the big question that I want us to consider tonight is this. What do we learn 
about Christ's return. As we think about this passage together tonight, as we consider Jesus' teaching in this section, what do we learn about the return of Christ and our right response to it? Well, I've got two answers to that question. The first answer is this. It is definite, but the timing is unknown, so we need to be ready. Christ's return is definite, but the timing is unknown, so be ready. Notice again what is recorded from verse 35. Jesus speaking says, Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning, like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will make them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or towards daybreak. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour you do not expect him. Now, the opening phrase here in verse 35 is a command. It's an imperative in the Greek. Be dressed, ready for service. That is to be in a constant state of readiness. And the very next phrase is the same. Keep your lamps burning. Again, it's a command, the same idea, be on constant alert, even in the darkness of night. And then a third image is given by Jesus. Christ followers being like servants who don't know exactly when their master will return. And of course, in this third one, we get a bit of a short parable as Jesus unpacks it a bit further. Uh, perhaps as you think about um, servants waiting for the return of the master from a wedding banquet, maybe a contemporary image uh, that might relate to us is somebody who's doing babysitting and they're waiting uh, for the parents to return home and to reclaim the care of their house and their children. The master is simply looking for one thing, isn't he, on his return. Just one thing is needed, that the servant is ready to hand over the house, having faithfully watched over it. But as Christ often does in his parables, there's a little twist in his story here, did you notice? He says that if the master finds the house well cared for and the servants alert, well, then he'll turn around and serve the servants himself. And this relates to future uh, rewards at the judgment uh, that will follow Christ's return. Um, Jesus is going to come back to this in the second half of our passage and discuss it further, rewards and punishments at the judgment. But notice here already that there's a blessing for those who are prepared upon his return, that what is done is taken notice of. Well, this theme of readiness is again taken up in the, a fourth example of the homeowner and the thief in verse 39, did you notice, where the focus this time is a little bit more on the unexpected timing. And Jesus' argument is that well, you could be sure that whoever the owner of the house was, they would... You know, they could sleep all day and just be up for that one moment the thief was coming if they knew when the thief was coming. But because they don't, they have to be in readiness all the time. They've got to be constantly prepared so that they're not taken unawares at that critical moment. 
Precautions need to be made at all times. And likewise, Jesus is saying, if people knew when he was going to return, when that return would take place, they could delay their preparations potentially until just before the time. Have you ever heard people think and speak that way? You know, um, I, I want to live my life however I am, and then maybe when I'm 70 or 80 years old, when I get to the end of my life, well, then I'll come to this God issue and I'll think about Jesus and whether I'll respond and give my life to him. But until then, you know, I want to do my own thing. The only problem with that is you don't know whether you'll have tomorrow because you might die. But secondly, you don't know because Jesus may return this very night. And so there's not a way to organise things or to think about things. And the application as Jesus gives it to his listening disciples in verse 40 is that therefore you have to be ready. You don't know when Jesus will return any more than a person knows when a thief will arrive at their house. So be ready. Because once Jesus does return, it's too late. You can't wait until that moment when he comes in all his power and judgment and then say, well, I want to have a second thought about this. The moment has passed at that point. All opportunity is lost. Judgment will take place. Now, events can take us by surprise. There's so many natural catastrophes in our world that take thousands of people by surprise all the time, isn't there? And there's a famous example, of course, back in AD 79 when Mount Vesuvius in Italy erupted and covered the nearby towns of Pompeii and Herculaneum in ash. No one expected this event, and for good reason. It had been a green-topped mountain for 800 years. If you are living in the shadow of this mountain, there is no fear that this thing is going to erupt. You're never going to be affected. Go on with life as normal. Because it did in AD 79. And thousands upon thousands of people died. Archaeologists think now mainly from the heat, uh, we, perhaps from suffocation under the ash as well. But as you'll know, if you've seen any of the details or you've visited, organic remains, including wood and indeed human bodies, were entombed in the ash that fell, making natural moulds that excavators could then make plaster casts of as they revealed what was under the ground as time went on. But of course, those casts often revealed gruesome figures, I guess, seeing everyone in that last moment of the catastrophe before they were overtaken. Uh, my wife, Christine, and I got to go and visit there in 1999, and you can see well, people were just going about their daily life, just doing as they normally did. There, were, um, there was dough in the oven baking at the moment it happened. There were all these things just unfolding, and people just caught and shocked. They were overtaken by this sudden catastrophe. A line was drawn, and that was the end. And Jesus is saying in our passage to us tonight, there will come a day when not only will a couple of towns be affected, but our whole world will be brought to a halt. And it won't be just that a few people are shocked, but everyone then will have to give an account before Jesus. And that moment of reassessing your life will have passed. A line will be drawn and that will be it. And so it's a fairly confronting first section to this passage. And perhaps it's natural that the disciples listening in have got some questions and Peter's got one in verse 41. He wants to know, well, is this just a message for us disciples or is this for everybody? 
Now, Jesus doesn't actually directly answer his question. He just goes on to tell another parable. But it's clear in the parable that he tells from verse 42 that this is a message that every person needs to hear. And so surely the application from this first part of our passage is that every person on planet Earth needs to be ready for the return of Christ. But what does that readiness involve? I mean, Jesus doesn't really spell it out in this passage. He doesn't explicitly say what it would mean to be the ready servant. I think in the first instant, it must involve a repentant acknowledgement that Jesus is the Lord of life. It's clear in this parable that he is the master, that people will need to report to him. They will need to give an account to him. He's establishing that he is the Lord and therefore if we have lived without him as the ruler of our life, then we need to come in repentance. We need to acknowledge our wrongdoing that we've turned away, that we've been living in self-rule. There's the first step and it's something that we've seen in the past weeks. It may not be given explicitly in this passage, but think about the past few weeks. Remember how Jesus was saying to the people, the crowds as they listened, I want you to be like the Ninevites. You know how Jonah the prophet went and spoke to them and how they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And so he calls the people listening to repentance. Of course, it will therefore involve listening to Jesus as well. We saw that a couple of weeks ago too at the end of chapter 11 with Mary and Martha. Martha was busy, caught up in the things that she was doing, but Mary was stopping and listening. And we saw as we considered that how we need to step back from the busyness of our world. If through it all we cannot hear Jesus, we need to be able to stop and to hear him and to actually listen to his word to us. And we also learnt in chapter 12 a couple of weeks ago that it requires us to stand for Jesus, that we'll publicly acknowledge Jesus. If we've repented of our sin, if we're listening to him, if we're seeking to follow his word, then we're going to stand up for Jesus. We'll be quite happy to own him publicly. And we've also seen as he's talked about what is ahead for him as he heads for Jerusalem, that we need his help. We need his rescue. Above all, we need forgiveness of our sin and that he is the one that can offer repentance and forgiveness because he will lay down his life for us. So often we don't see our need. I don't know if you remember back on Friday the 13th in January 2012, the Italian cruise ship, the Costa Concordia, it was happily going along with many hundreds of people, went off the coast of Tuscany, it ran into rocks at 9.42pm. But what followed was an absolute tragedy because there was this huge delay of 68 minutes before the order was finally given to abandon ship. You see, the captain of the ship didn't think there was any problem. He didn't need any help. In fact, he ordered dinner for himself and his female companion at 10.30, as if there was no problem. Look, we're so close to shore. This boat's unsinkable. And the result was that 32 people died. And many of those who survived the mess then made a predictable comparison between the Titanic and the Costa Concordia. 
There are some parallels. The Titanic was the biggest ship in 1912 ever built in England. The Costa Concordia is the largest ship ever built in Italy. Titanic hit an iceberg, the Costa Concordia hit rocks. And one of the many common problems between the two in the aftermath was lifeboats. In terms of the Titanic, there was not enough of them. They just didn't place enough on the boat. So confident were they. There were more than enough on the Costa Concordia, but they waited so long to seek any help that the ship had listed so far that you couldn't access a lot of the lifeboats, so they were not available to people. 32 people died as a result. And sadly, this world too is like a crippled ship and time is running out to make it to safety. And yet so often we're like the captain and his crew who even rejected the help of the Italian Coast Guard. No, we don't need your help. We're fine, thank you. As people died all around them in the aftermath. And so often we're the same. We think, look, I've got this life on my own. I don't need the help of Jesus. I don't need to repent and turn to him. I can do things my own way. And we can hold on and hold on in that thinking. And then the consequences will come and it will be too late on that day when Christ returns. And so he warns his listeners, as he warns us today, to be ready. See, he promises to return suddenly. And each one of us need to be ready for that moment because we will need to give an account before him when it comes. That brings us to a second answer, second answer to our question this evening. of What do we learn about Christ's return in this passage? Secondly, we learn this. We are to live faithfully while we wait as judgment follows. We're to live faithfully while we await Christ's return, because judgment will follow. Notice again what Jesus states from verse 42. The Lord answered Peter, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, oh, my master is taking a long time in coming. And then he begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour that he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with unbelievers. Well, here we have another parable, and we've got a contrasting one, similar to the earlier one, but here a contrast between two servants and their faithfulness or lack thereof to their master while he's away. Jesus turns his attention somewhat from the duty of watchfulness in the first half of the passage to the fate of the servant who is faithful and the one who is faithless and ask what the difference is in terms of this outcome. Jesus is taking his illustration from a household that appears to have a number of servants. This is a large household. The master goes away, puts one of those servants in charge to care for things while he's away, and then he will return. And we've got a comparison here, haven't we? And the first servant does what is asked. 
Jesus says the faithful and wise manager is the one who, when the master returns, will be found to be dutifully carrying out his responsibilities. He works at the task that he's been given so that whenever the master returns, it doesn't matter when, everything will be in order. And the master, we're told, will reward such a servant by placing him over all his possessions or his entire estate. So notice again the focus on reward for faithful service. Here is what believers look forward to on that day of judgment, for Christ to say, well done, good and faithful servant, and to reward them. And do you notice that the reward for faithful servant service is the opportunity for serving further before Christ in heaven? But that servant's accomplishment is not the only possibility. In contrast, the second servant is said to be wicked in Matthew's parallel account in Matthew chapter 24. We don't have that adjective here in Luke 12, but the, the description certainly fits. He's led to believe, the second servant, that the master's going to be away for a long time. Perhaps this is an acknowledgement that there'll be some delay in the return of Christ. But he seizes on the opportunity. He, he beats the other servants. He gets drunk. And again, in the parallel passage in Matthew 24, we get some of his thinking or motivation in this. And we read that he reasoned with himself. His thoughts are given. He doesn't express it out loud, but he's thinking through the possibility of being able to do whatever he wants because it seems that the accountability that may happen is so far down the track that it's not worth worrying about. In fact, he acts as if there will never be any accountability. The delay removes all possibility of the master ever returning. But of course, the master does. And when he does unexpectedly, verse 46, he punishes the man severely. We'd expect nothing less, surely. In fact, it's a very violent description, isn't it? He will cut him to pieces. He will literally cut him in two. Speaking of very severe punishment. Because that may refer to um, earthly death. It may simply be a metaphor because we see in the very next phrase that the man will be assigned a place with unbelievers. It's not that he's destroyed forever, but rather that he'll be assigned a place with unbelievers. And that phrase too is elaborated on in Matthew's parallel account, Matthew chapter 24. Matthew uses the term weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we know that that phrase in the New Testament is proverbial for the destination of those who are finally rejected by God, the suffering of those who are finally lost. And I think the same meaning is clear here in our passage in Luke 12. A place with unbelievers is clearly separation from God or hell. And this is perhaps a harsh judgment in our mind as we hear the parable but this judgment on those who falsely claim to be Christ followers is no different to any other unbeliever. There's a sense as we read the parable that this person is a servant and therefore included somehow in God's people or household. But there is no sense in anywhere in this passage that this person is truly a believer. 
They've never actually put their faith in Christ. Saving trust in Jesus will find expression in the life of a person. This is not a description of a believer losing their inheritance. Someone that had real faith going to hell. No, not at all. Rather, it shows conduct that proves they were never truly Christ's servant. The description of the wicked servant suggests that there is no... uh, Submission to Christ's rule, to the Master's rule. And we know from elsewhere in Scripture that a genuine believer cannot fail to receive eternal life. And Jesus states this very clearly in a number of places. For example, uh, John 10, verses 27 and 28. Jesus says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And so I put it to you that this passage acts as a warning for those who claim to follow Jesus. And it's a warning that it's not about attending church or hanging out with other Christians or occasionally having done this or that. It's about someone truly receiving Jesus as Lord. That is all that counts of having repented of our self-rule and thrown our lot completely in in dependence upon Christ and his payment for our sin. And the result of such a genuine conversion will be that we're about our master's business always, until he returns. This parable is not about underachieving or not doing enough good works. It's about hypocrisy. In fact, Matthew uses that word distinctly in Matthew 24 in the parallel account. It's about hypocrisy here, of talking the talk but not walking the walk. We see that a lot in life, don't we? The first time I went skiing about 25 years ago in Parashar, I went with a group of guys, and there was one guy that had been a number of times before, and so he took on the role of pro in our group, and so he'd be the expert, and he'll train us, get us all going. And so he had us all lined up to get on the chairlift for the first time, and he's standing there explaining how you've just got to bend the knees a little bit, the chair will just come down behind you and pick you up. Simple as anything. So there we all are, standing, waiting for that to happen. And to my amazement, I found myself comfortably seated. But then to my shock and horror, our expert who was on the end was standing too far out and he's hit by the end of the seat in the backside. It knocks him flat on his face into the snow. Worse than that, he's thrown down and flicks up his ski and gets it caught under the chairlift. So now he's being dragged along underneath us on his face as we threatened to launch off skyward with him dangling under us. Now, thankfully, the controller saw this at the last minute or heard our screaming or something, and they turned the thing off and managed to extricate him from all of this. But it was very clear that he could talk the talk, but when it came to it, he couldn't walk the walk or sit down even. Now, look, it's the same with those who claim to know Jesus but have never entrusted their lives to him, who have never actually turned in repentance and faith because God knows our hearts. And so we can't fool him. He knows who his sheep are. And the emphasis at the end of this parable is clearly on division, that our choices now affect us for eternity. And so the return of Christ does not mean that everyone will enter into his joy on that day. For those who have trusted in Jesus, absolutely, this is a day of celebration, of awareness of 
eternal reward, of inheritance, of eternal life with Christ. But for those who have rejected Jesus throughout their life, it is a fearful day. Those who have chosen to live without God will find their choice respected on that great day. Those who have rejected God will get to be without God permanently. But notice too that God is fair in his judgments. Christ highlights that God's judgment is proportional in verses 47 and 48. Have a look at those verses. The servant who knows the master's will, knows the master's will, and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving of punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. There's someone who knows Christ's will, who knows the gospel, the response our master requires and yet rejects him will be beaten with many blows. But for a person who doesn't know Christ's will, their punishment will be less, Jesus is saying. Accountability varies depending on what we know and what we do. God's judgment is just, it is fair. As we apply this second point in the light of the sure but sudden return of Christ, the risen Christ, and the judgment that will follow, what should our response be in the present? How might we live faithfully in service of Christ while we await his return? Well, I think firstly, we're certainly to tell others of the good news that has brought us into God's family if we've trusted in Jesus. How could we know that this day is coming and then not warn those around us, not share the hope that we have by announcing the gospel to others so that they too might be included in God's people? I mean, when you get to the end of Luke's gospel, the same as Matthew's, you have a great commission. You have Jesus announcing that the the gospel must be preached. Luke 24, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. And so surely that's part of what we should be doing while we await Jesus' return. But we have another task too, and it's described by the Apostle Peter as he addresses the end of the age. In 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, verses 10 to 12, Peter writes, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. There's that image again. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. And since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Surely our other great priority is to grow in godliness. That's God's great agenda for each individual. Just as you might summarise what the church should be about as edification and evangelism, building up believers and sharing the good news, so also for the individual that we might share what has saved us and that we might be growing in maturity, that we might be becoming more like Christ our Saviour. And so the question that I want to ask you at this moment 
If this is God's great agenda or one of them for you while you await the coming of his son, how are you going in your growth at this time? Are you pressing forward in Christ? Do you have people around you that are going to ask those hard questions of you and speak into your life? Are you part of a home group so that people will not only encourage you and build you up, but where needed will speak a word of rebuke and pull you up when you're doing things that are moving away from God's instructions to his people? If you're married, your spouse will be those that see you closest and be able to speak into your life in that way. If you're not married, if you've got a close friend who can do that for you, that you can do that for each other so that you might encourage and spur one another on to love and good deeds day after day. Please do those things. But I think living such a life as we await Christ's return faces stumbling blocks. Uh, why can we struggle at times while we're waiting for Jesus to return? Well, I think it's in part because of the suffering and the difficulties that we face in this world, and so we can be caused to drift at times from our determination to follow Jesus. Sometimes it's because of the negative comments and attacks that we get from non-believers around us. You believe in this Jesus guy? He's going to come back. You're going to live your life for him. Look, eat, drink and be merry. Tomorrow we die. Forget it. Just do whatever you want to do like I am. And so we hear that voice all the time. And we think, well, what is it that I'm living for perhaps at moments of weakness? Or maybe we're just not sure that God's word can be trusted. If we're to live for Christ, then we need to trust his word to us that he's going to return just like he said he would. And maybe you've been let down lots of times in this life. You've had people, flawed humans like yourself, make you promises and then let you down badly. And as you hear promises or words like these, this is what's going to happen. You're unsure at times. Words can prove hollow. When my wife Christine and I were about to move in and find a house in Wollongong 12 and a half years ago now, uh, we were looking around for weeks and weeks as everybody does, went to various houses and we kept coming back to this one house in Farnborough and we visited it three times in the end. The agent was not overly pushy, he seemed very positive about the house, kept telling us how great it was, leave it up to us. And we were taken with this opportunity, we were thinking, well, maybe this is it. We started making further progress on pursuing things and then we got a pest inspection and we realised that the place was riddled with white ants and our solicitor said, pull out, pull out, pull out and then she did some further investigation for us and we found that even less than 12 months prior, a previous inspection had been done and it said exactly the same thing and that the agent knew that. And so you can imagine we kept looking for houses without that agent because his words had proved hollow, literally. But when we come to the Bible and Christ promises to us, Christ is not a sinful man that will let us down in that way. His words will not fail. In fact, that's the very thing that Peter has to address in 2 Peter chapter 3, that passage that I was quoting from earlier. At the start of that chapter, Peter is dealing with a whole bunch of Christians who are struggling because all around them are people saying, do whatever you want. This return of Jesus is never going to happen. And Peter says to them, 
Remember God's track record to his promises. God's promises never fail. Remember he promised a flood in Noah's day. And what happened? It flooded and a lot of people who didn't believe it died. For centuries in the Old Testament, we were promised the Messiah would come. He would send his son, the Christ would come, and he came. And we're reading his words right now. And so he promises that the son will return again and he will judge all people. Then you can depend upon that word. You can stake your life on that word. And the result should be that you're ready that you're living for Jesus now, that you are growing in godliness, you are sharing this good news that has brought you into God's family through his wonderful grace, and you're awaiting your master, who every day is a day closer to returning. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we want to Acknowledge that your word is so clear to us on this point of the return of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We thank you that we look forward to a day when those who are in him by faith alone will be rewarded, will be vindicated for their trust. We acknowledge also that it is a day of judgment that will be fearful for so many who have turned their back on him. Lord, we pray that you would help us not to be those who drift from a firm faith in the Lord Jesus. Rather, you would call us to press on day by day and that we would share the life-saving message of Christ crucified and risen, that others may be brought into your family as you do your amazing work of drawing them to yourself. Lord, help us to partner with your great work in this world and to clearly live for you so that we might be pointing people to Jesus with our lives. We ask it in his name. Amen.